Well, this morning we'll actually be in uh, verse or chapters 14 and 15. So we have a fairly larger section. It's, it's the literary uh, narrative, the, the structure that the author has given to us. We want to do the whole thing. Uh, we got a three and a half hour sermon running a little bit late, but uh, we'll get it. You know, just if you need to call some a sitter, go ahead and call. No, I'm kidding. We'll we'll get through it. Uh, the, the the passage is fairly straightforward, actually, uh, but hopefully you'll see uh, the themes that the author brings forward. Uh, if you remember last week, uh, we started the Samson account. This is the sixth and final judge in the book. Uh, all of them starting out with uh, Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and then we go through the cycle. Uh, if you remember, uh, there's some uniqueness to the Samson account. It's the longest one that we have. Uh, there's also that piece about the people crying out uh, is absent. It's the only judge that that is absent in the cycle. And last week we talked about God's unsolicited grace that he pours out on his people. The people aren't even asking for it anymore. And yet God comes forward with his grace because God's more committed to the covenant than the people are. And one other thing that uh, is unique about the, the Samson account, it's the only judge that we have a birth narrative all the other judges were introduced as they're already, you know, older, adults. Uh, Samson is the only birth narrative. Now, most likely, as you were re- if you're reading this book straight through, by the time you get to the end of the Jephthah cycle, there's sort of, you know, as the reader's expectation, you're sort of like, this is going nowhere. Like, these judges are ridiculous. Like, Jephthah was a mess. I mean, he's killing 42,000 Israelites. And he's supposed to be helping Israel? This is not good. But when you get to the Samson account, and we read about God actually setting apart this child from birth, it begins to build this expectation as the reader is, oh, well, maybe maybe if God didn't just come to the, 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 the judge as he's older, but actually from birth was set apart by, and his parents set the child apart, maybe, maybe this will be different. Maybe this is going to be the child. He's actually going to fix the situation as the reader's expectation is growing. But if you know the Samson account, uh, you don't have to go very far to realize that that's not going to happen. In fact, twice already uh, by the time in the passage that... Uh, TJ just read, we're told that Samson is doing whatever's right in his own eyes. The people are doing what's evil in the eyes of the Lord, and Samson is doing what's right in his own eyes. He has total disregard for God's law. Uh, I think this passage today, verses, chapters 14 and 15, is extremely helpful passage if you ever have struggled because people sin against you. Does anybody have people sin against them here? Yes. Now, that could be a major, hard, deep past sin that you experience that you still struggle with, or something today that you have people, you live in a house full of sinners, and you experience their sin against you. This passage can be very helpful for you. If you live with deep regret for your past sins, or something that happened this past week, this passage can be extremely helpful for you. If you ever uh, live in kind of this fear of, of what other people are going to do to you, or m- maybe you sometimes feel the burden to, to do more for the mission of God, but you're afraid of, of what happens if I do A, B, and C. If I move to a dangerous part of the world, what if people treat me uh, harshly? This passage is great for that. 
And so as we read it, you're going to see two, two major themes that the author brings forward <clears throat> and somehow we're supposed to wrestle with. Somehow these interrelate somehow. The first one is Samson's total disregard for God's law. I mean, we are going to see Samson just doing everything that is right in his own eyes. He, is, he could care less about uh, God's, God's ways. The one who is supposed to be set apart to God is anything but set apart to God. He does not want to do what God wants him to do. And yet, the other theme is God empowering this man to carry out God's mission. You're going to watch as the Spirit of God keeps rushing on Samson, more concentrated in this chapter than any other chapter of the Old Testament up until this point. And somehow these two relate. Samson's total disregard for God's law and God's commitment to his mission of rescuing Israel from the Philistines. So let's just walk through it. Uh, it's a fairly straightforward passage. I'll read it, give a little bit of commentary. Won't be able to give as much as last week, just to the size, but uh, let's read through it. Uh, beginning chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, Samson, now, now an older man, he went down to Timnah, which is about six miles away from his home, roughly, into Philistine territory. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up, came back home, told his father and his mother, Hey, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. In other words, I don't care. I don't care what you say. Now, what, just so you know, like his parents here are, are actually in the right. They're, 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 they're not saying, well, no, like, there's, like we don't like that ethnicity. Like we just don't like those people. There's, it's not an ethnic issue going on. It's a religious issue. And so as they even stir up, it's those uncircumcised people. Uh, they're not under the covenant of God. That's the, that's the issue. The people of Israel were commanded, uh, when you go into the land, not to intermarry with the people. Uh, and it says, because they would draw your heart away from Yahweh, that you would begin to worship their gods, which in fact you see happen all throughout the book. The issue was a religious um, problem. Because, you know, uh, remember there's a very famous woman uh, who was not an Israelite, who actually is in the birth line of Messiah, Named Rahab, remember the Israelites coming into the land, they come into Jericho. And she was not an Israelite, and yet she is actually in the, in the lineage. Uh, she gets married to an Israelite, she comes under the covenant. And that's the issue. So it's not, it's, Philistines, anybody could come under the covenant, it's that you are going to actually worship Yahweh. So it's not, it's not an ethnic issue going on here, it's a religious issue. And so they're in the right, but Samson doesn't care. Yeah, the uncircumcised Philistine, I don't care. She's right in my eyes. Verse 4, uh, this, the verse 4 here, is, the author is cluing us into a little secret. Okay? His father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord because the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, verse 4 uh, is, is what you might uh, call the, 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 the reading glasses. This is the interpretive lens by which you read the rest of the passage. He does this earlier in uh, chapter 7 with Gideon. 
Uh, he kind of tells you up front, this is how I want you to read this story. The very act of Samson coming home from Timnah saying, no, I want that woman, it, the text tells us God, God is the one that stirred that up. God was seeking an opportunity. His parents didn't know that. His parents don't, don't have all the information we have, but now we have it. And so we, we ought to read the rest of the story that way. God is moving through the sinful desires of Samson to bring about an opportunity against the Philistines. So verse 5, the tension is only going to increase. Uh, Then Samson went down with his father and his mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. If you remember the Nazarite vow that he's supposed to be participating in, uh, he's not supposed to eat anything of the vine. Uh, it doesn't mean he can't go into the vineyard, but it even just raises the question as the, as the reader. Like, what's, what's he doing in a vineyard? What, what, are they, what are they doing there? It's, it's, it's going to be, get interesting. In fact, that's where it goes. Behold, a young lion came out toward him. Now, this is Samson just by himself, roaring. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore that lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Apparently that was common in those days at Terry. <laughs> but whatever. Uh, but he, here we, here we go again. He did not tell his father and mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Now, we ought to ask the question, you know, if I, I mean, if I went home for some reason, or I went out and was, you know, t- took a hike, and a lion came out of nowhere, and I d- defeated it with my bare hi- hands, do you think... You guys would hear about it? Of course you would. Like, I'm telling this story. The reason why he's not telling his parents is because he's now unclean. It's the dead, the dead body of the animal. And so now he's ceremonially unclean, ritually unclean. He'd have to go through all these exercises, and he doesn't want to do that. So he just keeps it hidden. And then he wants this girl. She's right in his own eyes. So now we have... A very tense situation as the reader, because you read about this man in 13, this child who's going to be set apart to God, is doing anything but living like it. We got a bad situation. Verse 8, the tension's only going to increase once again. After some days, he returned to take her. He turned aside to to see the carcass of that lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey scraped it out into his hands, and he went on eating as he went. He came to his father and his mother, and he gave some to them, and they ate. But, here we have it again, he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, a couple interesting things happening here in this, past, this part. Uh, right? So you think about where bees normally swarm. It's not normally in a, in a body of a dead animal. It's usually in a hollowed-out wood or in a brush or something, or a bush or something like that. It's not normally, it's possible in a dead animal, but that's not typical. And so already we have something totally strange happening. And again, you have this Nazarite uh, scraping the carcass. So if, you, if, you, if you've ever seen uh, how bees do honeycombs, you know, they, they, they'll kind of like build on the top and then the comb comes down. But it's like, it's like they build this wax on the top portion to, to hold on to the top of the box or whatever it is or, or the, uh, 
the hollowed out piece of wood that they're in. So they're, the wax is stuck there. So you just kind of, actually you can just take a tool and scrape it right off the wood. So here, Samson's taking his hand and scraping the inside of the, the carcass to get that nice honeycomb out. Now he's totally unclean once again. He's touching this dead carcass. Again, he needs to go, and uh, his Nazarite vow is broken. He needs to go get ceremonially clean. But what does he do? He just, it's just casually, he just the author paints it. He just eats it, and he walks, and he eats, and he goes to his parents and gives some to them. Doesn't tell them. Now what you have is this judge, this Nazarite judge, set apart unto God, actually not only walking around unclean, but then making other people unclean. He just has total disregard for God's ways. Now, one possibility going on here, it's not necessarily happening, but it's possible, um, I tend to think it is, is there may actually be, because of this, the uniqueness of the setting, it, uh, like a, a message actually being painted. Sort of like when the prophets um, sometimes live out part of their message, right? Or if you remember, Isaiah was told to walk around naked for three years, if you ever read that part, okay. You remember that part? No. All right. Well, it's just it's a strange part. Uh, Hosea's uh, to to marry uh, a prostitute who's going to uh, go commit adultery. Uh, you have Ezekiel cooking food over over dung, uh, and just you you have these the, the prophets living out part of their message. It's just, it's external so that the people can actually see it. Uh, I think possibly what's going on here is also a message being painted externally uh, because of the strangeness of what's going on. Because honey, throughout the, the Old Testament, is actually talk, uh, talked about as very good, a positive, right? The land of promise is a, a land flowing with milk and honey. You remember Jonathan, when he ate the, the honey, he was restored. So honey is good, and yet it's in this dead carcass, and so it's very possible, some think, I would hold this, that part of what's being highlighted at the beginning is the very message of what Samson's going to live out, is goodness is going to come from this dead carcass. Something sweet, something nutritious is going to come out of either Samson being the carcass or the Philistines. Uh, I tend to think it would be Samson, uh, Samson at this. So the idea would be that the very, the very carcass there uh, is this picture of, in Samson's life, God is going to bring sweetness or, or something good, even though it's full of dead bones. Yeah? Regardless of that, if that's there or not, his disregard for the law is extremely being highlighted, or highlighted there to an extreme sense. Uh, but then we move on. I call the next scenes, I, just, I call them honey from the carcass, act one, honey from the carcass, act two. It would, now we're, he's just going to demonstrate how the goodness of God, his mission is being carried out by this, this man who is totally unclean. So next scene, verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, saw Samson, that is, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Presumably these are like guards. or like They, they saw something in Sam, Samson that he wasn't safe. So these are like bodyguards or like soldiers. Samson thinks it's kind of funny and wants to play sport with them. So verse 12, Samson says to them, Hey, let me put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast, find it out. I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you can't tell me, what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. All right. They say, yeah, put, put your riddle that we may cure it. 
And so Samson, the sly man he is, just gives a riddle that is totally incapable for anybody to, to figure out. Because you would have to actually be at the scene of what he's giving. Now, out of the eater came something to eat. And out of the strong came something sweet. And three, three days go by and they couldn't solve the riddle. And on the fourth day they come to Samson's wife. These 30 companions, that is. And they say, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, or else we will burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Samson's wife wept over him, over Samson, that is, and saying, you only hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. Samson returns, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? And to which many of you wives would say, Well, yeah, yes, hello. Um, verse 17, She wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted. On the seventh day he told her because she pressed him. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him, On the seventh day, right before the sun came down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? So his riddle has been found out. He says to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. It's an <laughs> it's a unkind way to speak of his wife there. He's calling her the heifer. Now the thing is, like he, he's, really, he's lost this fair and square, right? I mean, yeah, there's like, she was pressing him and trying to, you know, I, I mean, I, I, all, there's, there's not a whole lot of goodness going on, but he lost fair and square. But Samson's pretty upset at this. You're going to see he's hot with anger, the text says. Verse 19, though, starts off by saying, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, which is about 20 miles away. He gets down there, and he strikes down 30 men of the town who weren't involved at the wedding, just shows up in the town, strikes down 30 of them, took their spoil, and gave their garments to those who had told him the riddle. So he goes 20 miles away, kills 30 guys, takes all their spoil, goes back, gives the spoil to these 30 men, uh, the 20-mile hike back. Uh, and then it says, And in hot anger, still hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. And that's the end of the... His wedding uh, feast. That's the first honey from the carcass uh, act. And then we move on to part two, honey from the carcass. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, so presumably months have gone by, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. You know, some use flowers as you're trying to create your your wife that you guys had a rift with, and some bring a young goat. So he says, in his mind, most likely, I, I will go into my wife, into the chamber. But he gets there, and her father says, uh, or would not allow him to go in, and her father said to him, Man, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Now look, is not her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Please, take her instead. Samson says, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. 
Now, that, that's an interesting statement, verse 3 there, because it's indicating that Samson realizes that what he did before was not innocent. He says, now I'm going to retaliate. Like, this, this man just gave away my wife to my companion. I'm going to retaliate, and I'll be innocent, because last time I wasn't innocent. Now, still, when I read that, I want to go, but are you going to be innocent? Like, you're the one that, you're the one that left. Like, he's just trying to care for his daughter. So I, I, don't, I, I don't know, but, you know, he's hot with anger once again, obviously. Verse 4, so Samson went down, and he caught 300 foxes and took torches. Now, he turned the foxes tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. Now, I don't know why he's doing that. Like, he could just walk around with a torch himself, but apparently he wants to use foxes for this. Whatever it is, verse 5, he then set fire to the torches and let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. And we'll pause there. Uh, this, it's easy for us to read that as if it's not that big of a deal, but this is major. Now he's just burned up all their crop. This was the wheat harvest. Everything they've worked for, they've waited for is gone. And that's, that's a big deal. I mean, years ago, we don't do a garden anymore. We used to have a sizable garden. In one year, a blight came through Milwaukee. That's the, it kind of kills all the tomatoes from the, from the bottom up. And that was so sad. But of course, I can go to Woodman's and just go buy more tomatoes. Not a big deal, right? But you got to think, like, this was, this was their food for the year. Like, what are they going to do now? Samson just burned it all up. But again, God is bringing honey out of this, this man that's just acting out of anger. God is bringing honey, a sweetness. He's, he's rescuing, he's beginning to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Verse 9, the next act, the Philistines, obviously they want to find out who did this, who's done this. They say, uh, they say, well, Samson, he's the one that did this, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he, the, the Timnite man had taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson says to them, Now, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh, whatever that means. It means a great blow. And he went down, and he stayed in the cleft of the rock of Atom. Now, it's interesting that he actually even goes down to the cleft of the rock. He, why isn't he just going down to the city of Israel, like a city in Israel? You're going to see that the people of Israel don't want anything to do with Samson. Now, on some level, you can probably recognize why. But on another level, like, he's supposed to be their warrior. So this is just, it's just a, a confusing situation here. Verse 9, the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah. So the Philistines now are coming against uh, Israel coming to Judah, and they made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said to the Philistines, Why have you come up against us? And the Philistines said, We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. So the, the men of Judah took 3,000 men and went down to the cleft of the rock of Atom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? Now, if you notice, 3,000 men to go get Samson? 
I mean, they're terrified of Samson. They, I don't think they trust him either. So this is taking the whole army to go get this man. Uh, where are we? Uh, as they, what then have you done? Okay, middle of verse uh, 11 there. He says to, back to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. So we just got this back and forth game going on. Verse 12, they said to him, we've come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. Then they said to them, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. All right, so now they're going to meet the Philistines, when they come to Lehi, so they're take, they've taken Samson from the rock of Atom, the cleft, to the Philistines. The Philistines come shouting, there's the warrior that they're looking for. And then we have it again. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that was, has caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, which would, again, make it unclean because it's a fresh jawbone. And this is now a weapon. Uh, and he put out his hand. He took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. And Samson now writes a poem or a song, much like Deborah did back in chapter 5, but it includes nothing about the Lord in it. It says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath Lahai. And he was very thirsty, understandably so. That's quite the war. And he called upon the Lord and said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the, Philist, of the, of the uncircumcised? Uh, which is interesting, at the end of the story, at the beginning of the story, he's fine mirroring the uncircumcised, and now he doesn't even want to be, have the shame of dying at the hands of the uncircumcised. So he clearly knew who these uncircumcised folks were. And he very much sounds like Israel in the desert, if you remember, when they're grumbling against God. Where's water? Why'd you bring us out of Egypt? Only to die of starvation, thirst out here. So he's grumbling against God, most likely. Verse 19, and God responds very, very much like he did to Israel. He split open a hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it is called Enhakor. It is at Lahai to this day, and he judged Israel in those days of the Philistines 20 years. And there we have it, honey from the carcass. So I already told you what I think is being emphasized in the text. Hopefully you saw that. You have two major themes. You have the theme of this, uh, this man has total disregard for the law of God, and yet uh, we have God working through him uh, to bring rescue to to the people of Israel. The question is, how do these two relate? And I, th I would sum it up this way, that God orders the sinful ways of Samson to accomplish God's mission. So it's not that Samson sins and then God eventually turns it for good. In fact, if you saw, remember that verse 4 is key for us. Samson, in his own mind, in his own volition, is coming to his parents and saying, I want that woman. 
And the text tells us, says, God is the one doing that. He is seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And so we actually tap into a major, uh, major theological reality that goes on throughout Scripture, and one that people wrestle with. It's this relationship between human volition, sinful acts, and the sovereign plan of God. And how do these relate? Do they ever meet? And I would argue from this text and others that God actually is underneath it. God is the one that actually ordains it. The sinful passions of Samson will actually carry out God's mission because God is the one that ordered it. Now that can be confusing on some level, hard intellectually, good for us because it will humble us, but it can also be confusing emotionally, right? Because we have people sin against us, we sin against other people, and there's this question, how is God involved in this? So I was thinking to myself, if I were to, you know, if I were to teach my kids this reality that God is actually uh, ordering sinful ways uh, in people to bring about his mission, what would I, you know, how would I do? First, I'd probably give an illustration just to demonstrate in just ordinary life how sometimes good and bad things are intentionally brought together to make something sweet. So think about uh, making a cake. This is a common illustration in this category. You know, cake has many different ingredients. Some like, you know, butter. I guess you could eat plain. Or eggs, you know, if you, you know, you, you wouldn't eat butter plain, Kirk? No, I wouldn't either, but Homer Simpson did. So, <laughs> I don't watch The Simpsons, don't worry. Uh, but eggs, if you know, I suppose if you're a bodybuilder, and you know, that was typical of long, long ago to drink eggs. Uh, I wouldn't advise it, but you could do it. Uh, but just think of like flour. You wouldn't like take a spoonful of flour. It's like gross. But nonetheless, you take all these ingredients and intentionally you're putting them together to make something tasty. In the end, it will go through the, the fire of affliction, you would say. And all of these bad things orchestrated by the, the cook, the baker, to make something good. So that would be my, my illustration in life. But I'd also use a quote. Here's a quote from R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul. Uh, this was one thing that he would, uh, was popular to say. He, he, he said, if there is one single molecule in the entire universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. I think that's a great quote. It says one single molecule anywhere in the entire universe at any time in the history of the world, if, it, if there's ever one you can demonstrate that is running around loose outside of God's authority, then this whole thing could crumble. Because we don't know if God actually is, has the ability to carry about his promises. And that includes not just molecules we can't see, but the actual sinful acts of people. If any of those things happen outside of God's control, then the whole thing falls apart. Or it shares something from a, a confession that uh, our church very much aligns with. Uh, 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, very much like the Westminster Confession. It reads this. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in God's providence or as ordering uh, the world and moving along things to fulfill his sovereign plan. 
uh, that his sovereign plan includes even the first fall and every other sinful action, both of angels and of humans. And here's the key line. It says, God's providence over sinful actions does not occur simply, simply by giving permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions. Through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs, uh, he, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfectly holy purposes, yet he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arise only from the creatures and not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous, he can neither originate nor approve of sin. I think that's a great statement, saying that God actually governs over sinful actions. He arranges them to bring about his purposes. God's not sinning in that. He's not, he's not mixed with that. The sinful actions are coming fully from the volition of the person, and yet God is the one governing that. It's the, 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 the language is used primary cause and secondary cause. So you might say, uh, I'm raising my hand. Did I do that or did God do that? Well, I did that. I mean, I'm thinking, I can do it with my left hand, too. You see that? That was pretty cool. I can do it both ways. Now, who's doing that? Am I doing that or is God doing that? Well, I am doing that. I'm thinking about that. But God can stop me at any time he wants. And God can ordain it that right now at 11.04 on a Sunday morning, I would lift my left hand. God is the primary cause. I'm the secondary cause. It's my own volition involved in this, but God is the primary. I'm the secondary cause. And God uses secondary causes to bring about his perfect plan. Now, I would also want to show my kids other places in the scripture where this happens. So take the very, very commonly well-known, famous story of Joseph. Remember the end of Genesis? Genesis, uh, first Joseph gets sold off by his brothers uh, into slavery taken to Egypt, this very, very evil act of 11 of his brothers actually selling their brother. I trust an act that Joseph never forgot over the years, some 20 20 plus years later. You know the story. Joseph is now second in command in Egypt. He's, uh, because of his care and his leadership, uh, over the years now, he's actually rescuing a lot of people. People are sustained by uh, all the grain that they have because of Joseph and the way God worked through him. Those were hard years to get to that point, but you know the story. Joseph's brothers come, and Joseph's dad, Jacob, ends up dying at the end of the book, chapter 50. And remember that the 11 brothers gather around again together. You, you get to hear the conversation that they, they join together, and they say, look, Joseph now, now that Jacob's dead, he's going to take it out on us. He's going to get revenge on us because he knows what we did. And they come back to Joseph and they say, hey, you know, uh, our dad said that you should forgive us. Did you know that? He told us that right before he died. And Joseph, or, uh, you know, he stops and he says, look, am I God? In, I'm not God in this situation. Don't fear. I'm not God. And then he says these words. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. I remember the scene. I heard your cackling. You meant evil against me. That was your desires. But God meant it for good. Same word. You meant evil. God meant it for good. Meant what for good? The very 
evil acts that they were doing. God is the one that ordained it. In other words, their sinful acts do not contradict God's sovereign plan. They actually advance God's sovereign plan. This is the type of God we worship. This, this is humbling because we run out of answers at some point. And that's good news for you. Good news for me. Because we do not want to worship a God that we can figure out everything so easy. Like, it's good to worship a God that eventually our brains just shut down. That's a good God to worship. But God says that that's the type of God that he is. Or maybe I'd go to 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 4. And Peter says, it is better that you should suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. So notice what he says there. He's talking about suffering at the hands of other people, sinful actions. He says, it's better for you to suffer for doing good. You're out there doing the right thing, and yet other people are sinfully acting against you, if that should be God's will. He seems to think, yes, people, people sinfully acting against you is God's design, God's plan. That's the way the New Testament authors thought. Or what about Jesus? Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So he's been, he's, in, this is Matthew 10, he's teaching the disciples that some will, are going to kill you. They're going to want to kill you. They're going to treat you poorly. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Right? Sparrows, you know, those are the, the birds nobody cares about. We got a tree outside our yard that, I mean, there's, there's, sometimes there's got to be hundreds in there easily. And sometimes, like just the other day, I came out, out opened the garage door, there's a dead bird laying there. I just kind of kick it off to the side. It's a sparrow. Like, what am I going to do with a sparrow? Nobody cares about that thing. But Jesus says, are not two of those sold in the marketplace for a penny? This is like the most mundane, unthought of creature. Two of them for a penny. And yet, not one of them, he says, falls to the ground apart from your father. The sparrow that you could care less about. Not a single one of them will drop to that ground apart from God ordaining that. And even the hairs of your head, he says, are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus seems to also believe that, yes, they may come kill you. Yes, they may persecute you. Some, somebody may take some horrible, sinful action towards you, whether that be in your own house or a government level, whatever it is. And God is the one ordaining it. And you need not be afraid. Because it can't happen unless God, your Father, ordains it. And of course, let me take you to Acts chapter 4, and we'll have to wrap up with this. Just so you can see, I think this is one of the most important passages you can see in this category. John and Peter had been imprisoned, jailed for preaching the gospel. They're then threatened by the leaders of Israel to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. They come back to the church. Uh, they gather around together, knowing that they're threatened, knowing that if they keep talking about Jesus, their lives could be in danger. And this is what they say, Acts chapter 4. It says, for truly, uh, verse 27, 
For truly in this city, this is the early church talking, there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Notice what they say there. They're praying. They've just been threatened, and they look up and say, God, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, they were doing an evil act. They were killing the Son of God. They were doing it volitionally. If we were to stop and ask them, who's doing this? Is God doing this, or are you doing this? All of them would say, no, I'm, I'm doing this thing. Pontius Pilate would say, no, I'm the one making this decision. The chief priests of Israel would say, no, like we are doing a righteous act killing this man. And yet here, they say, no, this is exactly what God has ordained. Because God actually uses and ordains the sinful acts of people to advance his mission. This is, this is amazing. This is the God we worship. This can break, bring great comfort as you try to wrestle through past sins that have done, been done against you. As you, as you try to wrestle through regret that you have of the sins that you have committed, somehow we have to be able to bring these before God and say, God, you were in that somehow. You ordained this. I can't make sense of it all the time. But according to Jesus in that Matthew 10, that's supposed to bring great comfort to our souls, that God actually is in control of this. In this passage, it actually stirs them up to take the mission forward. God, give us boldness to proclaim the gospel. And this message, this actual reality should stir us up for the mission of God. Because no matter what people try to do to us, only will happen if God is in it. With that, we've got to wrap up. Uh, let's go to the Lord's table. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, uh, the table is open to you. It's not about perfection, but about direction. Uh, people that believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. He died in the place of sinners to reconcile us to God, rose from the dead, and is returning. If that's you, if you've placed your faith and trust in him and are striving to walk in faithfulness with Christ, then we invite you to the table. If that's not you, uh, Scripture says that it would be bad for your soul to partake, and we ask that you not uh, partake of the elements. But if that's you, we ask you to come forward, grab the elements, and then return to your seat, and we will partake together. It was the most horrific act in history the crucifying of the Son of Man that brought us back to God. This morning, let us be reminded that God is indeed in authority over every sinful act. And he, believer, he will turn it for your good. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. We're told to drink of the cup until the day the Lord returns. For one day he is coming again, and he will consummate his kingdom. And all sin will be gone forever. And what a day that will be for the Lord Jesus. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, Drink this cup as often as you drink of it, in remembrance of me. Let us stand and pray together. God, we thank you for your grace to us. Uh, God, we confess these are in some ways, hard theological realities to, to face and to understand and to wrap our minds around. And yet, uh, we know that you are so much more beyond what we can ever think or imagine. 
And I ask God that you grant us humility to come underneath your wing and embrace what your word says about you uh, and about the world, about us, and allow it to give us freedom and rest and hope and joy in the world, knowing that our God reigns over every sinful act that will ever happen. In Christ's name, amen.